Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Book 10 of the Republic, Plato, through the mouthpiece of Socrates, makes an extended argument about whether Homer, and by extension, any of the poets, any of the people who work in the medium of language and create, whether dramatic productions, epic, lyric productions, whether any of them possess genuine knowledge about the things that they're discussing, or whether they have merely the semblance of knowledge, which makes them a bit dangerous as guides for anything that we would want to take their advice on. And this is a real live issue because if you look in Homer's Iliad or in Homer's Odyssey, you will see Homer himself at this point or that point telling you how things are done, telling you who is a good person at this art or discipline or skill and that this person over here is not. And he'll also have the character making speeches in which they are conveying what appears to be knowledge on these topics. So you might think, for example, about the Odyssey very early on. There's an assembly in Ithaca and Telemachus, Odysseus's son, speaks at the assembly. He lays out his complaints against the suitor. He's essentially engaged in ethics and in political science, and he's telling the people of Ithaca what they ought to be doing in relation to these suitors. So he's giving them practical advice. Is Homer, in portraying this, conveying to us any knowledge? That's the fundamental question. And the kinds of arts or disciplines or sciences that Socrates brings up here are medicine, Homer talks about how people heal other people. Strategy or generalship is how it's sometimes translated. Legislation or statesmanship. Practical arts that produce things that are useful for us in life. A way of life. A consistent ethics, you could say. And then education more generally. Homer does, in fact, talk about all of these. And the ancient Greeks, all the way up till Plato's time, did think that he was very convincing that Homer was a reliable guy. So they would make reference to him and bring up quotes from him and from other poets. You'll see this actually happening in platonic dialogues as well, not just on the part of other characters, but even on the part of Socrates. So the question here is, is there any legitimacy to this? So how would you determine that? Plato, in effect, gives us two criteria. And a little bit of backstory, Plato has just laid out for us the fact that these imitative artists are further removed from reality than craftspeople themselves who work with, you know, material things. And even they are removed from the ideal archetypes or patterns or forms that are most real, most true. So in making a bed, for example, the bed maker, the carpenter, looks to the ideal pattern that's 
somehow in his mind makes a physical bed. Homer writes about Telemachus laying in a bed and discusses the woolen blanket that he pulls up over himself and whether a bed is good or not. Homer is more removed from the reality of the single archetype of bed than is the bed maker, the carpenter. And we can say similarly for, for everything else. So all of that said, the key thing here is how do we know that the poets don't really know what they're talking about? Well, one criterion is can they in fact do the sorts of things? Can they produce the effects that these people do? Does Homer actually heal anybody? Does Homer actually produce a way of life that we can follow? Another criteria is whether other people looking to the poet say, aha, this person does have knowledge. We're going to commission them. We're going to rely upon them to provide us with these services. As a matter of fact, Plato actually goes so far as to say that if Homer or Hesiod or any of these other poets really knew what they were talking about, nobody would let them do poetry. Nobody would allow them to spend the time writing these poems, composing these things in their head. They'd make them do the actual thing instead. So let's look at these criteria. Notice another thing too, with every single one of these sets of skills, except for strategy, generalship, Plato actually brings up somebody who you can say did in fact, or does in fact have display and use those skills to the satisfaction of other people. There is a little bit of sketchiness involved with bringing up Protagoras and Prodicus, two sophists who are oftentimes being criticized in other parts of the Platonic dialogues. But let's put that aside for the moment. So let's think about medicine. Medicine is one of the disciplines that grew up alongside of philosophy. And although certainly not as advanced as the medicine that we know today, Hippocrates and people like that were in fact able to produce some sort of healing with some people, right? So there was some science to it. And they attribute it to Asclepius, the god of medicine, son of Apollo, and then the doctors who follow after him. And Plato says, look, they are actually able to heal people, at least in some cases. They can tell you what to eat if you're feeling sick. They can say that you should have a hot bath or a cold bath or no bath at all. They can diagnose what is wrong with you. So they have some genuine knowledge. Plato says, did anybody ever go to Homer for being healed of anything? No. Well, then presumably Homer doesn't actually know about medicine, even though he talks about medicine. So he talks about it in an imitative way, but without knowledge. He doesn't talk well as a result. And the mere fact that people think that he does is just a function of their not actually knowing what medicine consists in. Who do you want to consult to see whether the poet talks well about medicine? Probably a doctor. Strategy. Did anybody ever give Homer a command, a military post from which to exercise power? Why not? The answer is, of course, no. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do that with many of the other poets? who talk about military affairs. Now we do have to make some exceptions here. Solon, who's talked about in terms of legislation, he writes poetry and he in fact writes poetry about political matters 
Presumably, you would say that he actually does understand those matters because he was involved in them. So he might be an exception to this rule. But Homer himself is not being brought in as a strategic or tactical consultant, right? So again, lots and lots of discussions, even cool things like strategies, the Trojan horse, right? Or if we want to take the Odyssey, how do you kill a whole bunch of people who are in your house trying to seduce your wife? And there's many more of them than there are are you, how would you take them out? There's all sorts of discussions of strategy in there, but Plato would say that they're not based on any sort of genuine knowledge. What about legislation? Here, Plato brings up three people, two of which we know quite a bit about and which he talks about quite often. Lycurgus and Solon. Lycurgus was the lawgiver to Lacedomia or Sparta as we know it, right? He is the one who straightened them out at one time. He said, this is the way we're going to set up the laws. Solon is the one who is responsible for Athens in that way. He was not actually the first lawmaker, but the laws that they had in Athens were not particularly good. And so he rearranged them. And the way that you can tell that he actually did the right thing is both the rich and the many didn't like the way the laws went because they restrained them from doing the things that they would like. So Plato says, we can point to examples of people who successfully gave good laws to various Greek city-states. Homer talks about good laws. He talks about how places should be arranged. I brought up the example of the meeting at Ithaca, where Telemachus is trying to get the people of Ithaca, all the princes, to bring their power to bear on these suitors, to get them to leave him alone, to stop frequenting his halls and eating up all of his food, and to abandon their claims. So presumably, Homer doesn't actually know what he's talking about. Or if he does, it's an imitation, several steps removed from the real legislation the real statesmanship displayed by somebody at some time. What about practical arts? What about types of knowledge that help us do things? Here he brings up Thales. You might say, well, Thales, isn't he the everything is water guy? Yes, but Thales is also somebody who observes the sky and engages in the very beginnings of meteorology, weather prediction. As a matter of fact, we find out that he was successful enough in predicting a bumper crop of olives that he bought up all the olives of presses and then charged people high prices to use them when there was a great crop and made a ton of money thereby. And we might include other people in here. He has Anacharsis as well. I can't remember offhand what he what is associated with him, but these are practical arts that are supposed to help us in managing our day-to-day affairs. Some people actually do possess knowledge in that. Way of life. Here he talks about Pythagoras. Why does he bring up Pythagoras? Pythagoras did not just produce a philosophical doctrine. He actually gave to all of his followers a way in which they ought to live, embodying that doctrine. There were admittedly some obscure points to that. There's endless discussion about why they thought you shouldn't eat beans, for example. But that was, in fact, part of their way of life, their way of putting the philosophy into practice. And Plato rather jokingly says, listen, are there any Homer followers? Even his best friend didn't really follow his advice about things. Nobody is following a Homeric way of life. Now you could say, well, what about Hesiod? You know, works and days. Don't people follow that? And the answer is, well, if you read Hesiod's poem, not many. (laughs) 
right? But you could say perhaps there is a coherent way of life being set out in that. But if we're restricting ourselves to Homer, then this is a legitimate criticism. Finally, he talks about education. And this one we've got to be a little bit careful with because these are the sophists. This is a little bit sketchy. Plato says these two guys, Prodicus and Protagoras, are able to convince other people that they ought to give their sons to them for education and that they can educate them about all sorts of matters. He doesn't actually commit himself to the view that Prodicus and Protagoras, in fact, do in fact understand all things. And if you read other Platonic dialogues, you'll see that he does not have quite such a rosy picture of them. But what can we draw from this? Homer can't actually convince us the way that these two guys could, to turn our children over to him for their education. So, you know, point after point after point. Why is Plato bringing up so many examples? Because he wants to show that really everything that you might turn to Homer for, Homer does not provide you with any genuine knowledge, but only the imitation of an imitation of knowledge. He's several steps removed from that. So the upshot of this is that we should not, in fact, trust the poet for knowledge about things. We might extend this in our own time to think about all sorts of other people who similarly are treated as if they have knowledge about things. We might talk about novelists or filmmakers or musicians. Plato would say all of these are imitative artists. The mere fact that somebody can make a movie about mathematics does not mean that mathematics actually works the way that they depict it in the movie. When, you know, somebody has a love song and they're saying, I understand that it's hard for us to get along because we're so different. But hey, baby, opposites attract. Maybe you're better off going to a psychologist than listening to the song and taking advice from that. So this has relevance in our own time if we understand other people as fitting in this mimetic, imitative producers that Plato places the poets and Homer within. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.